after all, we do have lack in here, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like lack. Get started. Uh, first, as always, I want to say thank you guys for joining us during this wonderful quarantine and the Quarantine Collective. We are all stuck in our wonderful little tiny homes. Uh, we are fortunate that we aren't forced to work and be out in the grocery lines, uh, thankfully. Um, so during this time, we are running through anti-Oedipus and the goals of these toxins. They always are to really go tooth and nail through this thing and have discussion. So please do not hesitate to join us in voice chat. If you have something to say, go join us in the text chat, discussion chat live. We will unmute anyone to have a conversation and to ask questions and to join up. A uh, few little housekeeping things. We are now past 700 people on the server, which is too many that's why they're that's why we have too many and we need volunteers who can help us uh moderate keep things going have discussion please the server only does as well as everyone so join and say hi let us know how you can help if you just want to moderate we are looking for volunteers uh, at the same time we've sort of reorganized a bunch of things around here including how we're doing our weekly uh we'll call it response chat or our just you know dissection of the text. Uh, today we're going to be going through paragraph by paragraph in order. It's going to be pretty structured. But if you'd like to join us tomorrow, uh, and when I say us, I do mean all of us. We are going to be having a more roundtable, randomized, specific discussion around all of this. That's intended to be a lot more open, a lot. Uh, more able for everyone to take part. And uh, last, this one earlier this week was excellent. We're starting to learn how to do this, hopefully. So, uh, but with that, I will pass it over to Craig, who is our wonderful host for this and uh, the other admins. And I will uh, let Craig take it from there. Okay. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, wherever you are. Um, <clears throat> my, my sort of opening comment today about today's reading regards Franz Kafka's very short story before the law. And if you've read that story, or if you haven't, it regards this man from the countryside who walks far uh, to, to find the gate of the law with a capital L. And in the story, he wants to gain access to the law, but there's a Tartar uh, guardian standing outside the gate who prevents his entry. And basically, the entire story is him trying to negotiate passage through the gate that will take him to the interior of the law. And the interesting thing about this is uh, the, the guardian at the gate says, oh, inside this, this gate, there are an infinitude of other guardians like myself, each stronger than the next. Even if you make it past me, you won't make it past the next one, nor the next one. So there's no use in trying. So this poor guy spends his entire life trying to get inside the law. And at the end of his life, after he's been drained of all his energy and all his personal affects have been uh, taken from him by the guardian, um, he's about to die. And the guardian utters the phrase, um, something to the effect of, well, now the gate, it, I'm going to close the gate because this gate was meant for you and you alone. And the gate closes and the, the story ends. Now, <clears throat> How does this relate to what we're talking about today? Well, the thing is, this guy from the countryside, he thought that the law had an interior, that the law, whatever makes up the law, which for Deleuze and Gattari, we'll find out later, is just desire. Desire, the way that law forms, there is no universal form of law. We could argue that it's a sort of coalesced version of, or coalesced um, 
uh, state of desire. And one of the uh, things that they say is, is that um, in order to uh, get to the root of de- uh, the law, we must see it as desire. And the problem with the law is in the in Kafka's story and in other places is that it makes it seem like something like the law has an interior, it has an inside, that there's some beyond, some fantasy. And this is one of the things that they're attacking in this section, that this notion of desiring production as a kind of fantasy or as a hallucination or as something idealized is false. And so with that, um, I want us to keep that in mind maybe as as we begin reading this and maybe even going back into some of the previous sections that we mentioned earlier. Um, so I will go ahead and read the first uh, paragraph and then I'll turn it over to anyone else who has uh, comments about this. We're on page 51 of the PDF at the bottom. There is no such thing. <laughs> There is no such thing as the social production of reality on the one hand and a desiring production that is mere fantasy on the other. Think Kafka. The only connections that could be established between these two productions would be secondary, ones of introjection and projection, as though all social practices had their precise counterpart in introjected or internal mental practices, or as though mental practices were projected upon social systems without either of the two sets of practices ever having any real or concrete effect upon the other. As long as we are content to establish a perfect parallel between money, gold, capital, and the capitalist triangle on the one hand, and the libido, the anus, the phallus, and the family triangle on the other, we are engaging in an enjoyable pastime. But the mechanisms of money remain totally unaffected by the anal projections of those who manipulate money. The Marx-Freud parallelism between the two remains utterly sterile and insignificant as long as it is expressed in terms that make them interjections or projections of each other without ceasing to be utterly alien to each other. As in the famous equation, money equals shit. The truth of the matter is that social production is purely and simply desiring production itself under determinate social conditions. We maintain that the social field is immediately invested by desire, that it is the historically determined product of desire, and that libido has no need of any mediation or sublimation, any psychic operation, any transformation in order to invade and invest the productive forces and the relations of production. There is only desire and the social and nothing else. And I think one of the things to point out before we um, go on to questions is one of the things that they're addressing here is the this uh, history uh, in philosophy where folks tried, philosophers, when I say folks, philosophers tried to marry Marxism with psychoanalysis. How is it that we can talk about um, the the productive sphere of of political economy and the productive sphere of the interiorized version of psychoanalysis that we get with Freud. And one of the things that they're saying here is like, look, when it comes down to it, all desire is an investment in the social field. So with that said, I turn it over to questions and comments. 
Well, I've, I've got one. It's uh, just a question ultimately about for, you know the word, wording they're using. Uh, throughout the text, the entire book, and throughout almost all of theirs, they have an interchange of what they mean by we, depending on the perspective they're writing from. In okay. this paragraph, when they say we, do they mean we as in Deleuze Guattari, or are they using it in the we of... Uh, sometimes they talk about it from we as in society, uh, the societal we. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Well, I think Deleuze and Guattari think of themselves not only as a we um, of Deleuze and Guattari, which, I mean, in a sort of deflationary way, yeah, they're just talking about themselves. But I think they anytime because it's uh, that often they'll say things like, um, oh, when we go out into society, they mean people, they mean humans, they mean like the sort of normal everyday. Right. When they say here, we maintain that the social field is immediately invested by desire. This is them saying we as us trying to come up with schizo as a as a prescient thing for us to move forward with. They, they're talking about this is actually what we mean. Right. Is that yeah. the case? Because I, this, I think... this paragraph sucks. I hate this paragraph a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. My, my take is this. Now, I, I could be wrong on this. I think they are talking about themselves as authors. They include with that their audience, but also when they think of themselves as a we, they think of all the mediators that they're using in this philosophy. And I mean, there's a way it seems that they're being kind of comedic or cheeky, but I think they're, they're very serious in, in another way. Um, um, there's a famous quote by Deleuze and Guattari, like, we are already like a, a crowd. We are already a multitude, both Deleuze and Guattari coming to the page because they have so many philosophical mediators. Um, so I think that's at work there. But I, I think the other thing is at work there, too, Brooks. OK, uh, then then I mean, I, I'll let someone else talk. But I have so many questions about this paragraph. OK, uh, Go, Andrew has something, I think. Yeah, I'll just uh, comment on several things. Well, first, Brooks's question, I think that there are a couple of we's here, right? And I think that the we on the page 29, right, where they say we maintain that the social field, I think this is purely them being, them saying we as authors, but there's a much more broader, right? Sorry, there's a much broader we, right, on the page 28, when they say that we are engaging in an enjoyable pastime, we are content to establish a perfect parallel, right? They are here talking about, and this is this is what I think they're talking about, they think they are alluding to the whole philosophical tradition or the whole uh, tradition of thinkers of the 20th century who, as you said previously, tried to recognize try to reconcile or to find a parallel, right, as they say, between Freud and Marx. And what I think they're saying in this first part of the paragraph is essentially that Freud cannot match Marx's, um, Marx's discussion. He cannot match the <clears throat> discussion that Marx has provided and then that, that he, by his reductive, in a way that we've already identified, reductive theory uh, also reduces Marx's analysis that they're trying to, uh, beyond other things, profess in this uh, book, right? 
Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what he's saying. Um, and and the, the key is at the top of page 52 when he says the how the parallelism between Marx and Freud is sterile. Um, as long as it is expressed in terms that make them interjections or projections, we can read that as signs and representations of each other without ceasing to be utterly alien to one another, as in the famous equation, money equals shit. I uh, think, um, yeah. And on the previous page, when they say that this mechanism of money remains totally unaffected, it's obviously implied that this shouldn't happen, right? And then if we were to employ a better theory or a better understanding or a materialist psychiatry, even that they're, <clears throat> that they're trying to produce here, uh, this mechanism of money shouldn't and would not uh, in reality uh, remain unaffected and that this relation wouldn't remain sterile in general. I'd like to I'd like to mention that uh, when it says uh, the Marx Freud parallelism, uh, I put into the chat uh, this uh, book by Gao, um, Symbolic Economies. Uh, I think that th that 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 book is the um, kind of like uh, main example of someone uh, working out what the Marx Freud parallelism might be. Well, I think what they're saying is like we have um, we have these these concepts of money, gold, and capital, and they have their analog and all of the um, psychoanalytic terms put put out by Freud. And then he's like, no matter which way we try to square these in terms of uh, the the notion of a parallelism, we're never going to get to the notion of a politically economy, a fully embedded, socially productive politically a political economy, even when we're talking about. Um, the unconscious in, in the way that, that Freud wants to talk about it. I'm, I'm going to dive through some of my other questions because this, okay. uh, it, it sounds like we're starting fresh, but I mean, this is halfway, almost halfway through this chapter. And it's a very, very dense chapter overall. And we're ultimately trying to deal with their, idea and conception of a materialist psychiatry. That's ultimately what this section's about. So I, I, I'm having trouble in general understanding, and Andrew hit on it a little bit, when they talk about money equals shit, uh, what part of social production and desiring production represents money and which represents shit? I'm not understanding, like I'm having trouble with the metaphor, I guess. Well, I, I, I think that, I think that what they're talking about here is um, the uh, what do you call it the uh, the general paradigm where where these the, the, there's uh, there's economic uh, differentiation and there's psychological differentiation and this is the general paradigm that parallels those two but but what they're saying is that they don't actually interact that they're that that the desiring production and the social production are independent of each other and their and, uh, their their argument is that ultimately they're actually one and the same yeah i, I think the, the the point is is that money 
does not have a representative or does not, for example, money, for example, does not require um, a representative to mediate it, to talk about it as a, um, a function or, or a flow in the unconscious. So, I mean, Freud, um, if I remember correctly, and maybe somebody in the, in the chat can, can correct me on this, but uh, he said that like when you dream of money, it actually, or I'm sorry, is it when you dream of shit, it actually means money. It's the other way around. It could be the other way around. I'm not sure. But um, I think it's the shit and money. Yeah. So if you dream of shit, it means money, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So if you dream of shit, it means money. But what they're saying is like, no, look, money is one of these flows of desire that we're talking about. It, it, it's concrete. It doesn't need this, this notion of a representative or something to interpret it, to understand it. Okay. Okay. So and what, what's um, what's more, and what I would like love to be discussed further, and actually what I think the kernel of this paragraph is, is when they say that uh, that social production is actually desiring production under determined conditions, and this is in a way something very novel in this uh, first section we've been reading, because if you remember at the beginning or in the first or second section that they don't. Uh, express this difference or this difference generally they don't express it as uh, succinctly succinctly as here right and what is implicated here is i think <clears throat> that of course desiring production is only the, the social production is only one way of uh, of the manifestation of desiring production and maybe <clears throat> somebody can comment further on how this relates to what we've been reading and what we we are going to read later. Right, I think one the what they they want to highlight with the notion that social production is purely and simply desiring production itself under determinate conditions is the fact that in in Freud's framework we we do have a a notion of desiring production, although he doesn't label it that. It's the Oedipal complex, right? And the way that desires be, or drives become configured um, through the Oedipal triangle. But what they're saying is like, look, things in the social sphere, such as the use of money, the exchange of capital, gold, all of these things too constitute a form of desiring production just under these determinant conditions. Okay, so then mm -hmm. I'll ask, I'll ask um, the way that they finish this off uh they talk about the libido doesn't need any mediation or sublimation psychic operation any transformation in order to invade and invest the productive forces and the relations of production there is only desire in the social and no thing else so then so then does that mean a fact that another way to say this would be uh, it's not so much that when you dream of shit that you're thinking of money. It's that when you dream of shit, you're actually talking about shit because shit itself is a thing. Your 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 production, the process of production, doesn't need to be mediated. Yeah. See, this is this is where we're we're we're, we're getting away from this paragraph a little bit, but that that's a good question. Mm -hmm. I think it's more like this. I think what they're saying is. <clears throat> You have exchange uh, exchange of capital in the social field. So there's flows. And those flows bring to bear on all things, uh, namely you as um, an individual or uh, you as a family or you as a social group or whatever that, that refers to. So it brings to bear on all these multiplicities. 
uh, in a way that does not require a representative to interpret it. Oh, this money thing over here, this real social product that actually causes anxiety, stress, depression, and all those things. It's not that this thing refers to this, this image or this symbol in a dream. These things are actually productive flows in the social sphere that bring the bear on the way that you feel in this world. And so if, if, we're, if we're using um, you know, Freudian uh, the interpretation, Jungian archetypes, anything like that as a sort of um, way to divert um, or interpret the, the meaning of those flows as being something that stands outside of the social sphere of production, then we're making a mistake. Well, okay. So, and I know um, maybe I should wait until after the next paragraph because it's yeah. these next few paragraphs that get into uh, when we're talking about, we don't need the libido doesn't need any more sublimation and they are, you know, shitting on Freud for saying, Oh shit equals money when shit itself is actually a thing. I'm going to read the next paragraph. That's right. Yeah, I think the last thing you said was was probably the most important thing that we have collectively said that shit is its own flow. Um, right. But anyway, continue. Yeah, let's go into the next. Paragraph. Can, can I just the, mention before you read the next paragraph please, that, please. that the uh, you know they they have this uh, concept of the regime in which uh, the uh, they basically say the desiring machines are a micro. Uh, phenomena and the socius is a macro phenomena and and they're two different regimes of the same thing and so and then and then I interpret this this last line that there is only desire and the social and nothing else see that they're, they're saying that that Oh, there's a, you know, that's the reality that there's those two things that are basically the same thing because they're different regimes of each other. Yes. Yeah. Actually, Ken, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think this is part of what you're talking about is schizoanalysis and not psychoanalysis, that you can have these flows that do have different regimes, ways of uh, interpreting them um, and that these these flows have um, multitudinous functionality. So w- one good example is 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 money. The way that and I mentioned this in a previous discussion, the way that you use money on a daily basis to buy a candy bar or um, uh, ground beef or whatever it is that you buy is very different than the way that the 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 financier or the venture capitalist uses or thinks of money. So yeah. it th- those are different regimes of capital. And and that's the way that they want to talk about um, analyzing the social field. And, and I, th- I think the point is that they shouldn't be reduced to each other or considered projections or introjections. Th- that's right. That's right. Yeah, and this libido they mentioned, it shouldn't be reduced to the mere transformations or the mediation sublimations of the same libido, but actually a libido that is looked at before all these processes that are occurring within Freudian psychoanalysis, right? Right. And so so taking it back to psychoanalysis, if you have a dream that brings great anxiety or makes you fearful or whatever sort of emotion it brings you, that dream it has its own regime. It has its own sort of localized milieu. But what they're going to say is that it intersects with this sort of broader network of social production and is itself 
part of social production. It's not separated by any sort of signifiers. It doesn't okay. require. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I guess, fuck moving on because I'm, this is, this is so interesting to me as a concept. If we're going to go, and I'm going to go back to the money equals shit thing and how it fits into this. So is he saying when, when Freud comes out and says money equals shit, his response is effectively, no, no, money doesn't actually exist. Shit is real. I think what Freud would say with money equals shit or like Marx or Freudo Marxists would say with that is that the, the one represents the other. Um, anal retention has by some taken to be the developmental basis of private property. And I don't know exactly where that idea originates, but I've seen it floating around. Uh, the idea being, I, I retain this shit. It is my shit. I let go of the shit. I expel it. I am. And this is kind of, Psychoanalytic, psychoanalytically, the prefiguration of spending money, right? It, it, in a imprecise way. Um, what they're saying is rather than this kind of representation, it is these are two, two different flows which operate in a similar way. They're the same kind of thing rather than one representing or prefiguring the other. Okay. And uh, just to hit on why that's mentioned, uh, I, I have a two-year-old and one of the most traumatic things he's experienced so far was the first time we flushed his shit down the toilet. Hmm. Because to him, it was something he made and yeah. it was him, part of him. And it was this awful thing for it to go away. So I, I understand, you know, where psychoanalysis came from that. It, it comes from that sort of early developmental cycles, a lot of their stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I'm trying to where I'm trying to figure out is they keep going back and forth on there is only desire and the social, no thing else. And the next paragraph gets a little bit more into that. Um, I've, I'm going to go to the next paragraph. Yeah, yeah let's go ahead. Yeah. Um, even the most repressive and most deadly forms of social reproduction are produced by desire within the organization that is the consequence of such production under various conditions that we must analyze. That is why the fundamental problem of political philosophy is still precisely the one that Spinoza saw so clearly and that Wilhelm Reich discovered. Why do men fight for their servitude as stubborn, stubbornly as though it were their salvation? How can people possibly reach the point of shouting, more taxes, less bread, as Reich remarks. The astonishing thing is not that some people steal or that others occasionally go out on strike, but rather that all those who are starving do not steal as a regular practice, and all those who are exploited are not continually out on strike. After centuries of exploitation, why do people still tolerate being humiliated and enslaved to such a point indeed that they actually want humiliation and slavery, not only for others, but for themselves? Reich is at his profoundest as a thinker when he refuses to accept ignorance or illusion on the part of the masses as an explanation of fascism and demands an explanation that will take their desires into account, an explanation formulated in terms of desire. No, the masses were not innocent dupes. At a certain point, under a certain set of conditions, they wanted fascism, and it is this perversion of the desire of the masses that needs to be accounted for. Um, this is why, so the previous, when they talk about money equals shit, and they're like, no, no, there's only desire in the social, nothing else. I would say that a lot of this is actually turning it on its head and saying, no, no, we've constantly said, well, money's the real thing. Shit is the symbol of it. It's my representation. 
Mm -hmm. I would argue that this is saying, no, no, money is just the the sign, the the semiotics of the situation. The real is the shit. That is the desire we are creating. We want shit. We want this awful thing that we have wrapped inside of something that's pretty and an illusion that we're able to pretend is something else. Yeah. Go ahead, Andrew. I would just like to comment because this uh, whole paragraph, reading it after I've been, I've been reading Mark Fisher's book for the um, for the discussion we're having in a few days and on Saturday, and I'll, I won't go on, on a tangent here, but I just wanted to to bring it up one example he uses in the book when he says that mass depression hitting the society, right? And then the real problem with it is the people or the neurologists who are just interpreting all this all these symptoms within people right as a kind of neurological phenomenological phenomenological thing or a just an influx of serotonin or whatever but they're not asking the real question and the real question is what causes this serotonin and i see the same reasoning being implied here when they say that we're not we shouldn't only analyze social production, right? But analyze this desire, which works underneath and which produces this uh, social production. And this is what they get at at the end of the paragraph with the fascism example. So, so I would like somebody to further comment on this and how this. Uh, yeah, I think works. they're setting. I think they're setting up an argument. Their argument here, which is, um, you know, what we've tried to do historically by squaring Marx and Freud, uh, by identifying this parallelism, uh, really what we've been doing is we've been creating a gap. We've been, we've either instituted or reinstalled this gap that exists between the notion of social production and desiring production that is a fantasy. And on the side of fantasy are signs and signifiers that stand outside of the realm of social production. And when they start talking about Spinoza here and fascism, I think, well, I know for a fact that what we're, we're leaning up to is this question, in what ways has this institution of um, signs and signifiers in this sort of ideal realm been laid a snare for desire such that people wanted these things and believed in these things in such a way, namely Oedipus. If, if I believe that I have an Oedipal uh, complex, well, now I I have created a framework for myself by which all my desire can be caught. And what they're saying is this is the way that fascism works. How is it that people come to want their own repression? And it, I think this paragraph here kind of like leads into the next one. But if somebody wants to say something else, by all means, go ahead. I, I want to make sure everyone sees the book posted. Uh, Frank Thomas's <laughs> Thomas Frank's uh, What's the Matter with Kansas? Um, it's a wonderful, terrifying book about what happened in Kansas with their hardcore austerity and extreme conservatism. Okay, cool. It's, I it's, it's pretty appropriate. Uh, Craig, um, yes. I don't know how relevant it is, but I got my um, Lucas Spinoza book, um, and he points out that sort of the true city offers citizens the love of freedom instead of the hope of rewards or even the security of possession. For it is slaves, not free men, who are given rewards for their virtue. Um, and that was in the treatise. Uh, 
don't know if that's sort of what he's pointing to when he talks about the Noza noticing this fundamental problem where the slaves are the ones that get rewards. Um, that sort of reminds me of the idea of fascism and this idea of a semiology that might reward people for their own servitude. Yeah, I think I think the the notice here or the the mention of Spinoza here and Reich is just that like look, we have these two thinkers who landed upon this idea here. And now we want to get to the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. And I I'm sorry, I'm just not as familiar with the, the the Spinoza excerpt that you're referencing here, but I mean it could very well be the the case. I mean is it from uh, Spinoza's political work? Uh it's just from the practical philosophy. From oh, from the, the Practical Philosophy book, uh, the Deleuze mm-hmm. book. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, maybe post that in the comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to take a look at the section that you're looking at. Yeah, well, um, but anyway. uh, I'll go ahead and continue on to the next yeah, paragraph. Yeah, let's do that. Um, yet Reich himself never manages to provide a satisfactory explanation of this phenomenon, because at a certain point he reintroduces precisely the line of argument that he was in the process of demolishing, by creating a distinction between rationality as it is or ought to be in the process of social production, and the irrational element in desire, and by regarding only this latter as a suitable subject for psychoanalytic investigation. Hence the sole task he assigns psychoanalysis is the explanation of the negative, the subjective, the inhibited within social field. He therefore necessarily turns to dualism between the real object rationally produced on one hand and the irrational, fantasizing production on the other. He gives up trying to discover the common denominator or the coextension of the social field and desire in order to establish the basis for a genuinely materialist psychiatry. There was a category that Reich was sorely in need of, that of desiring production, which would apply to the real in both its so-called rational and irrational forms. Uh, It's worth mentioning the footnote there. We find in the case of culturalists a distinction between rational systems and projective systems, with psychoanalysis applying only to these latter. Despite their hostility to culturalism, we find both Wilhelm Reich and Herbert Marcuse certain traces of the same dualism, even though they define the rational and irrational in a completely different way and assign them different roles. Yeah, I just, I just like to mention that uh, when I read this, I, I was reminded again of the, the Bataille's idea of the general versus the restricted economy and how how basically what he, he's saying is that uh, in the general economy, you have all of these irrational things, and that's part of the economy. It's not something different. You know, it's not just the restricted economy that is the economy. Yeah. Also, I think Deleuze and Guattari here, they're, they're making, they're taking a swing at the sort of inherent moralism that's uh, in, in Reich's mistake. And any sort of view, namely the psychoanalytic view, that views these tendencies of desire to get trapped in the way that it does when, let's say, you know, it it turns to fascism as being a negative. Um, They want to conceptualize this as a as a quote unquote positive movement means this is a function of the field of desire as it has been set up. It's not an aberration or anomaly. also not a constraint or limitation on something else it is productive in itself yes that's right 
Well, they also seem to be saying here that there is a, a the moralizing that goes on when they have the one side, the rash, rationality as it is or ought to be, is almost referring to the irrational element of desire as though it were aberrant, and that's why it needs to be studied. When uh, obviously them being one and the same in this context, it's not that one is aberrant or anything. It's we need to just look at them as they go back to consistently in the world of desiring production. And what Craig's been saying, again, reminds me of Spinoza's work when he and his system doesn't differentiate between good and evil, but rather goes as far as to say that there is no good and evil in nature, right? And what this implies further on is that this, <clears throat> if, if good and evil, what I'm saying is if good and evil doesn't exist, if good and evil doesn't inherently persist in nature, what does exist then is only good and bad affects which are produced on certain bodies in what Deleuze can call production, but what Spinoza doesn't really conceptualize, right? And, and what this and how this relates to this paragraph is essentially one more differentiation between schizoanalysis and psychoanalysis, the second biggest one we've seen so far, in my opinion, uh, namely what happens is, and this is really a pivotal moment when they say, no, it's not really only about psychopathologies, psychopathology, it's not only about these uh, demented neurotics, whatever, uh, we don't need to analyze only the negative, right? Yeah, I think um, Martini, he um, brought up uh, chapter two of the the smaller uh, book on Spinoza by Deleuze, the practical philosophy book. And and I think, Andrew, you, you hit upon something there that really connects to what I was saying about the inherent moralism. I think trying to see anything in the desiring uh, in the field of social production as good or evil is the wrong way to go. Uh, we can look at things in terms of good and bad, meaning, you know, to what extent for um, is a, a subject served by the system of social production that it's in? To what extent is it allowed uh, freedom? Um, to what extent is it allowed to um, gain access to resources, for example, uh, rather than, oh, is this a good system or a bad system? Is that a drive a good one or a bad one? The, the question for Deleuze and Guattari is, is like, what can a subject do inside any given so, uh, field of social production into which it's situated? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so maybe we should continue. Uh, I can continue reading. Go ahead. The fact that there is a massive social repression that has an enormous effect on desiring production in no way vitiates our principle. Desire produces reality. Or stated another way, desiring production is one and the same thing as social production. It is not possible to attribute a special form of existence to desire, a mental or psychic reality that is presumably different from the material reality of social production. Desiring machines are not fantasy machines or dream machines, which supposedly can be distinguished from technical and social machines. Rather, fantasies are secondary expressions deriving from the identical nature of the two sorts of machines in any given set of circumstances. Thus, fantasy is never individual. It is a group fantasy, as institutional analysis has successfully demonstrated. And if there is such a thing as a two sorts of group fantasy, it is because two different readings of this identity are possible, depending upon, upon whether the desiring 
machines are regarded from the point of view of the great gregarious masses that they form, or whether social machines are considered from the point of view of the elementary forces of desire that served as a basis for them. Hence, in group fantasy, the libido may invest all of an existing social field, including the latter's most repressive forms, or on the contrary, it may launch a counter-investment whereby revolutionary desire is plugged into the existing social field as a source of energy. The great, the great socialist utopias of the 19th century function, for example, not as ideal models, but as group fantasies, that is, as agents of the real product, productivity of desire, making it possible to disinvest from the current social field, to de-institutionalize it, to further the to further to further the revolutionary institution of desire itself. But there is never any difference in nature between the desiring machines and the technical social machines. There is a certain distinction between them, but it is merely a distinction of regime, depending on their relationships of size. Except for this difference in regime, they're the same machines, as group fantasies clearly prove. And one footnote we missed while reading is that this institutional analysis there is connected with what Gattari was doing at Laborde with other psychiatrists, namely uh, Jean Uri. Yes, I got to tell you, this is this is a difficult paragraph. It's pretty obvious to mm -hmm. me that um, Gattari was the author of this paragraph, meaning he put pen to page for this one. <laughs> it's his writing style for sure. Um, it definitely doesn't have the poetic, fun, artistic side of the writing. Oh yeah, like I, you always go through the meat grinder with with Gattari a little bit. It's so right? clinical. It's so yeah. clinical. Um, I I would say if we're having trouble with this, which I am, um, is just try to grasp at the 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 very basic premise, which is the notion that any kind of fantasy uh, in the form of you know, uh, like a dream, for example, a hallucination, uh, or not a hallucination so much as a um, just a sort of meandering fantasies that we have on any given day, uh, mm -hmm. the sort of hopes and dreams that we all share as a, as a culture that we believe to have as individuals are a product of a, a, it's a kind of group fantasy. I mean, there's so many ways that I think we can, we can talk about this. I mean, just the obsession with um, here in the United States, in California, in Los Angeles, for example, with being athletic and the sort of uh, what you might call the hysteria around like athletic culture, the kind of clothes we wear, like we, we have to maintain our workout regimes, this, that, the other thing, like all of that is something that is participated in. It's not just that specific mm -hmm. individuals seek um, a sort of individualized program of discipline for themselves. It's something that they partake in in a larger group fantasy. But what I would like to mention with this group fantasy is that it directly correlates with the experience he had at Laborde. And what happened with Laborde, for anyone who isn't familiar, is all of these different characters mm -hmm. or all of these different roles that were assigned previously to his arrival and previously to the experiment, right? They all tended to get switched up. So, so these individuals who were there, and I'm not talking only about the patients, I'm talking about the staff, the doctors, the nurses, the medical workers in general, mm -hmm. right? All of these roles tend to, tended to switch, tended to fluctuate at times. And then this the, these uh, <clears throat> people who are in psychiatric institutions worldwide, deemed patients in laboratory were deemed 
maybe medical workers, maybe gardeners, maybe technical workers, janitors, I, I don't know. But Ngatari goes in depth in one of his books about this and, and somebody who's interested should read it. It's really an experience. And is that because the uh, of the sort of structural formation of Laborde that that it that the, what, that sort of trans, um, that transition between positions was allowed? From my understanding, that was uh, an ideal <clears throat> kind of structure that they opted for, or mm-hmm. a kind of uh, absence of hierarchies they tried to achieve at Laborde, yeah. and then they. You know, generally, the, all these even medical workers didn't do their jobs, their you know proper jobs all the time. They, they did some other things. Maybe some of these medical workers were the gardeners, while and, and these things, as I said, fluctuated all the time. Yeah, I know that Gatari worked very hard to sort of w- what he called free mm-hmm. up the sort of unconscious uh, content or. Yeah. Uh, of of the workers and uh, clinicians and the patients at Laborde, um, you know, by conducting numerous interventions where they would create what he called new order words for their group. Um, yeah. And he believed that, you know, basically ar- articulating the sort of latent frustrations of the group allowed them to sort of overcome this impulse to maybe hierarchicalize, maybe in the way that a traditional Western uh, psychiatric hospital would be organized. Uh, this this paragraph and what you're saying right now also makes me think of the Stanford prison experiment where mm-hmm. you take individuals who are college students, young adults and what have you and assign them very strict roles of either prisoner or deputy. And it didn't take but what was it like two or three weeks. And the those who are assigned the deputy roles were actually beating on the people who are assigned the prisoner roles. Mm-hmm. And what we can say is that these the individuals, quote unquote, who were uh, had signed up for this experiment didn't partake in an individual fantasy that these impulses to oppress and to uh, beat down the prisoners came came to them as as part of a a sort of structural um, uh, organism or mechanism that was created within the experiment. Yeah, and what Will writes in the chat, and I don't know why he isn't connected by voice, but he puts it much better than I tried to do. So he says, Gautari's work at Laborde attempted to de-hierarchize the patient-practitioner relationship, and this is really at the heart of it. And this can be seen, this can be seen in Gautari's famous claim that not only should the the psychoanalyst get paid, but also the analysis in in this. Schizoanalytic transference of sorts. I'd like to mention something here uh, that's different, which is that this this kind of duality between the two ways of looking at things, which is the desiring machines are regarded from the point of view of the great gregarious masses that they form, or whether the social machines are considered point of view of the elementary forces of desire that they that serve as a basis for them. So uh, one of the things that uh, I have as a way of approaching this work is to see it in terms of what Merleau-Pontic talks about in uh, the visible and the invisible as an example of wild being. And in that, where he defines wild being, he talks about the chiasm. And so 
and so uh, things that are involved in in uh, this structure of wild being are chiasmic, and this is an example of a chiasmic structure. And basically, basically the chiasmic structure comes from reversing the terms and it meaning something different. So, so like uh, you know, you can apply this to a lot of different things, but like the being of becoming and the becoming of being. If those two w phrases have a difference in meaning, then that's a chiasmic relationship between the two terms. And you can apply that to, to uh, uh, social desire and desiring sociality, perhaps, as a, as a chiasmic relationship that points back to this other ontological foundation, which is uh, wild being, which is very different from like difference that uh, Derrida talks about as uh, uh, which which Merleau-Ponty calls hyper. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that because that's a, a kind of very different perspective to look at what is being uh, talked about here. Shall we move on to the next paragraph at this point? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, th there's a lot to be said about this. Oh yeah, we uh, can social the, the social relation that is um, much more visible, as Gattari notes here, in this um, kind of the word escapes me again. Group fantasy, etc. But yeah, maybe we should move on. Okay, maybe I'll do the uh, next paragraph. Uh, what, so, when in the course of our discussion above, we laid down the broad outlines of parallelism between social production and desiring production in order to show that in both cases, there is a strong tendency on the part of the forces of anti-production to operate retroactively on, say, rabatsur, productive forms and appropriate them. This parallelism was in no way meant as an exhaustive description of the relationship between the two systems of production. It merely enables us to point to certain phenomena having to do with the difference in regime between them. In the first place, technical machines obviously work only if they are not out of order. They ordinarily stop working not because they break down, but because they wear out. Marx makes use of the simple principle to show that the regime of technical machines is characterized by a strict distinction between the means of production and the product. Thanks to this distinction, the machine transmits value to the product, but only the value that the machine itself loses as it wears out. Desiring machines, on the contrary, continually break down as they run, and in fact, run only when they're not functioning properly. The product is always an offshoot of production, implanting itself upon it like a graft, and at the same time, the parts of the machine are the fuel that makes it run. This has always been a little bit of a challenging part for me, especially when I started out with anti-Oedipus, to understand um, the question, how is it that desiring machines uh, continually break down as they run and maybe even operate in virtue of that continual breakdown? So I'd like to just mention that, um, you know, one way, going along with what I said about wild being, uh, uh, Carlos Cast Castoraitis, he um, he talks about uh, wild being in in terms of a concept he has in his work called magma, which is like the magma of a 
Kano. And, uh, and he tries to create a small formal system that describes what magma are because they're, they're not determinate. And so for me, this, this, um, uh, this description of desiring machines here is, is, is pointing toward the, the idea that these desiring machines are exemplifications of what Castoridis calls magma. Could you say more about magma? Like, how, how does that again? <clears throat> so, uh, Castoridis, uh, he is also, just like Deleuze, starting off from the visible and the invisible of uh, Merleau-Ponte, but he goes in like a completely different direction in trying to explore what is wild being. And, and when he talks about that, he uh, relates it to some, you know, to like in a volcano when you have magma, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a state of matter which is between being solid and being liquid. Okay. And so that, that, that being between solid and liquid, you can look at things in society as uh, uh, indistinct or undifferentiated that become differentiated and distinct. This is like the, the things coming out of the pre-individual into the individual. In the mm. pre-individual, they're indistinct and, and, uh, and, and not differentiated. So what they're trying to capture with this wild being is this idea of uh, that things can be in this indistinct um, uh, state, but still function. And so when he talks about the desiring machines here, the 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 uh, characteristics that he uh, applies to those desiring machines are 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 kind of indicating that these are indistinct things that we're talking about, not distinct things like technical machines. The technical machines are always extremely distinct. Oh, I see. Okay, I, I got you. So, so really, it's a question of um, two levels of ontology. At, at yes. one level, with the with the technical machines, you have what we could call maybe um, coarse grain distinctions. Like we can see, for example, the value of a machine um, transmitting the value to the commodity as it produces, and so forth. But the desiring machines, which are made up of uh, numerous uh, and often quite small, smaller components don't, we, we, in, in our observation of them, we don't get the, um, the sort of clarity in terms of being able to identify, oh, what kind of machine is it? Because there are these sort of like, maybe something like a liminal state, or there's a, um, there's a level at which, you know, the, the ontological, um, sort of, um, like relief is is not as, as as starkly cast as let's say um the ontological relief of a a technical machine yeah and i think i think that, that when he talks about technical machines i mean there's two kinds really there's hardware machines and there's um and then there's uh computational machines and you know coming out of the uh discussion we had uh, of the of the first part of the chapter, I started looking into what what are the descriptions of machines. You know, is there a general theory of machines? <clears throat> and I found a book from uh, I I can't remember the exact date, but uh, from the 1800s that that talks about uh, kinematic machines and kinematics. Uh, 
syntheses. And what was interesting about that was the emphasis on the joints in the machines as being the key parts of the machines. Mm. And so I think that's kind of what we're talking about here. In technical machines, those joints are very specific hinges mm. within the machine. But but as these things become indistinct, then, then there's some uh, probability at work or something like that that uh, doesn't allow them to be uh, discrete and determinate. Mm -hmm. That's that's me. It it almost seems like, and and maybe somebody can correct me if I'm wrong here. That when you have a technical machine, there's a um, there's almost like an externality or uh, a derivative that's produced that isn't necessarily the intended product that could constitute what we call a desiring machine. You know, I think of something like the way that slag is produced, um, or um, it could be just trash. Or, I mean, let's think of a technical machine that's very basic, a hammer, a hammer on an anvil, and it throws sparks <clears throat> as, we, as we hammer down on it. I mean, in, in some sense, the sparks being thrown from the surface of the anvil constitute a desiring machine of sorts, right? They mm -hmm. don't necessarily, necessarily bring to bear upon any sort of intended product. Um, but there's all kinds of these correct. machines. There's all kinds of these machines that are functioning in the social field that have this sort of this this effect of an externality or a derivative. Does that make sense? I I'm not. I think yeah. it makes sense, uh, yeah. and literally in the text, because in one of the later sections, in one of the later paragraphs of this section, we will find um, a term that I always interpreted as a byproduct. And mm -hmm. that they use the term offshoot. Mm -hmm. We will see it, and I will—I mean, I will uh, highlight it when we pass it, because because I think this is essentially what you're getting at. This is exactly right, and yeah. what Kent was saying really makes a lot of sense. Maybe to put a finer point on on the example, uh, I think of that documentary Chasing Ice, where they found that <clears throat> much of the carbon particulate um, that that hangs in the atmosphere gets distributed on the tops of glaciers in the Arctic Circle. And that particulate combines with other um, very small particles to produce this substance called cryokonite. I think that's the name of it. And by getting layered upon the surface of a glacier and then in conjunction with being hit by the sun, it accelerates the process of, the, of melting those glaciers and in turn accelerates the process of global warming. And so we're talking about a form of anti-production here that comes in virtue of these other productive processes that's completely unintended. Yeah, that's very interesting. Does that make sense? I wonder if that example works here. Well, I, 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 would love to I, think, I think that the key point is that technical machines operate in the realm of extension almost completely. And so then, then the thing is that... that uh, you know, desiring machines probably, uh, you know, fade into the, uh, uh, you know, the realm of intention and the realm of hyper intention, you know, mm -hmm. analytic philosophy, these are terms, you know, extension, right. uh, goes back to Frege, intention, extension, intention, hyper intention, there's been a development in analytic philosophy, uh, related to possible worlds that, that have uh, kind of teased out these different layers. And, mm -hmm. and the thing is that technical machines, even though they have a goal and an intention kind of built into them, the machine themselves are per perfectly extensional unless they are 
guiding their own uh, uh, operation. <clears throat> yeah, I think the one thing that we need to talk about, um, because this comes back in the text, is that desiring machines are constantly breaking down. Yeah, and this is what Lack asked in the, in the chat. And we've seen this actually in the first section, and, and this is maybe what we talked in regards to saturation and to these machines, desiring machines always kind of pushing to the limit and then going back. It, can, can this be uh, brought up again? I think it, it can. And I really like what you've been saying about the intended, unintended, and it really correlates with how I've been picturing it this whole time as <clears throat> a kind of instinctive and then planned with regards to anti-production and production. You know, an another thing that I'd just like to mention is that, you know, there, there, there's these, uh, as technical machines, there's the that are like steam engines and 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 automobile old old style automobiles that didn't have so many computers in them and so forth you know and then there's computational machines and mm -hmm. that are abstract and um in those computational machines the uh exemplification of those is the turing machine and the turing machine is a very well defined thing but there's this thing called a universal turing machine so a universal turing machine is a turing machine that runs other turing machines and so it turns out that the universal Turing machine is exactly the same as a Turing machine, except um, in its context, uh, like for instance, if the Turing machine is an application, then we're all concerned about when it stops, is it going to stop? And you can't, it, you know, looking at it from within inside, you can't, you can't tell whether it's gonna stop or not. But like a, a, uh, a universal Turing machine, they never stop. They're the operating system of your computer, you know, until you hit the 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 uh, off switch, you know, that operating system keeps going. And the and the the, the local application Turing machines are the the programs you run within that computer. So you're starting and stopping all of those applications that are running on your computer. But the but, you know, you only you only stop the operating system when you don't want to use any of those applications again. Hmm. And and they can be stopped from the outside. Like if you lose power to your house, then you know the 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 machine just goes off, not because you turned it off, but because the wider system uh, turned it off. Hmm. So that so there is this this in 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 these perfect kind of computational machines, there is this oddity as well that hmm. Turing machines and universal Turing machines are exactly the same thing, but in a different context. Yeah, I the, the the essence of of this is is really hard to capture outside of just repeating exactly what they say, which is that desiring machines are are continually breaking down. I mean, we we could marshal I think a hundred other examples, but actually we have we have about four pages five four pages of of text to read. So maybe we'll move on and 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 keep bringing up these examples as it makes sense. Uh, they actually get into a few uh, pretty quick here. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a read, the uh, next chapter on art. Okay. 
Uh, art often takes advantage of this property of desiring the machines by creating veritable group fantasies in which desiring production is used to short circuit social production and to interfere with the reproductive function of technical machines by introducing an element of dysfunction. Armand's charred violins, for instance, or Cesar's compressed car bodies. More generally, Dolly's method of critical paranoia assures the explosion of diring machines within an object of social production. But even earlier, Ravel, Ravel preferred to throw his inventions entirely out of gear rather than let them simply run down and chose to end his compositions with abrupt breaks, hesitations, tremolos, discordant notes, and unresolved chords rather than allowing them to slowly wind down to a close or gradually die away into silence. The artist is the master of objects. He puts before us shattered, burned, broken down objects, converting them to the regime of desiring machines, breaking down as a part of the very functioning of desiring machines. The artist presents paranoiac machines, miraculating machines, and celibate machines as so many technical machines, so as to cause desiring machines to undermine technical machines. Even more important, the work of art is itself a desiring machine. The artist stores up his treasures so as to create an immediate explosion. And that is why, to his way of thinking, destructions can never take place as rapidly as they ought to. Right. I really like how what I really love about losing that theory is that I always go over some of the concepts that they already emphasize. And what we've seen here is what Craig has tried to emphasize in a previous discussion about revolutionaries and seers and how they <clears throat> they are completely objective and not in the rational way but in the you know materialist way that they've been trying to highlight this whole section and, and they repeatedly go on about what art is even though sometimes it feels that this uh, this section and this this whole set of paragraphs is purely pure density. Maybe some of these uh, some of these sections are just where we uh, stop and rest. I guess I don't know. So, so I'd like to mention something, which is uh, you know uh, uh, Adorno wrote a book called Aesthetic Theory, and I just read it recently, and and in there he talks about a lot of the strange elements in art. And the, the object of art. And one of them is that objects of art have auras. And he talks about their auras. And so he uses this kind of disembodied spiritual concept of the aura to talk about how the how the work of art functions. And I think that that is the kind of thing that they're talking about here when they talk about the the objects produced by the artist. Yeah, the, the figure that comes to mind uh, for me is Banksy. And I mean, there's a way in which this paragraph here at the time that it was written um, presented a sort of novel idea of, of aesthetics. And maybe in some sense it still does. But it seems that since Anti-Oedipus was written, there, there's been much done in the field of, of art, fine art, film, and so forth that has been an actualization of this philosophy. Um, I mean, the one example that immediately comes to mind is um, Banksy's paintings on the wall. Uh, uh, is it at the West Bank or, or at the Gaza Strip? Um, 
you know, basically ways to take uh, an object that in the social field that has been meant to produce a division between uh, two populations uh, basically highlights the the um, the oppression uh, and the 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 sort of negativity of 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 dominance um, <clears throat> that the, that the wall instantiates and um, I mean, there's 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 countless examples of this in Banksy's work. You know, instead of throwing a grenade or, or a cocktail, there he's throwing a bouquet of flowers and sort of con, you know reconfiguring the way that we uh, consider certain images and and cliches in art. And I would I would add uh, my my current favorite genre, and I, w- I know we've talked about this a bit, Craig, is the vaporwave, mall soft, and that entire world of techno which thrives specifically on how the nostalgia of broken technical equipment works you'd have massive slowdowns mixed with broken moments mixed with off-key things because they got trans transduced wrong and all of this is actually taken into and used by the artist in vaporwave it's a i copied a book wonderful book on it called babbling corpse by uh, grafton tanner mm. uh, it's a, I'm a huge Vaporwave fan, and uh, it's the aesthetics of flaws is effectively what Vaporwave is. That's a great book. Yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to mention. Yeah, there's a concept in uh, that comes from, I think it's maybe the, the music of Mexico or just um, uh, Spanish-speaking culture in, 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 in general of Duende, and maybe some Spanish speaker can can correct me on this one but there there's a notion that there's an element in in the art form particularly of music uh and i think duende means sad, it means like goblin if i if i'm not mistaken but it's almost like a like a like a sadness or a yearning and a kind of nostalgia in the music and i i think like what Brooks is talking about with vaporwave and Mallsoft is is that the breaking down of of those machines it, it it creates a vibe and it sort of lures us in in a way that that um are you know basically highlights this I mean for me anyway I I think of a band like like Boards of Canada and in particular uh, they're using old tape machines degraded tape um nostalgic uh instruments from like you know public access and p uh like pbs specials and that sort of thing and to tap into people's uh um memory of their childhood and and it's amazing how the the notion of breaking down in the in you know, the artistic presentation has the ability to do that for us. And and I think something of that is here. And, and Mallsoft is one of those that I really enjoy because it's such an odd concept. And Mallsoft is a genre of techno very specifically that plays on the concept of how it, things would sound played over the speakers of a mall in the mid to late 80s. Uh, and it's such an odd, very specific, weird thing. But what I love about it is, for me, there is, when listening to it, absolutely a moment of nostalgic desire. Because I remember that feeling when I was nine and with my parents, and I I didn't see the world as this capitalist nightmare hellscape we live in now, but instead, oh my God, we're going to the mall and the excitement. Uh, so there's that, but at the same time... Uh, there are kids today who've never been in a mall, <laughs> like not not as I knew them, at least. And they experience 
a nostalgia for things they never ex- they never had a chance to experience. And that is an exceptional sort of meta way to experience this natural hellscape and weird critique of capitalism that is mall soft music. I'll post some versions of the music that I love, but it's a it's things like this that help me understand at least what they're talking about when we talk about how desiring machines undermine technical machines, how art works like this and people play with objects. Um, yeah, and 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 just bouncing off of what you you said there, Brooks. The and this is a sort of armchair theory that I'll, I'll come up with on the spot here is that by articulating uh, or highlighting that nostalgic element, it and I'm going to link it right back to the text. It gives us a chance to make a break or a rupture in the hellscape. Um, just looking at the very last sentence, the artist stores up his treasure so as to create an immediate explosion. That is why, to his way of thinking, destructions can never take place as rapidly as they ought to do. Um, I, I think that when we, one of the the the, the ironies of of something like vaporwave or with what boards of candidates is doing is, although it's nostalgic, it's it is the creation of the new. The reconfiguration is its own sort of new event, and it's by retrieving those nostalgic elements, retrieving the breakdowns and organizing them in a certain way that we can rupture the the, the sort of immediate and grotesque that exists in mall America today, right? That exists in consumerism. So so I, I just like to mention that, you know, I you know, I know it's kind of like broken record. But, um, you know, basically, you know, what this to me is indicating is the fact that, you know, the general economy is right there with the restricted economy at all times. So so if you have the technical machines, which are part of a restricted economy that are that are that are working all the time uh, properly uh, until they wear out, then kind of as a shadow or ghost or something like that. There's there's always the desiring machines are the kind of fantasy of the breakdown of mm-hmm. that that then gets captured in in the art. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the claim that they're building up to here is is similar to the one that that I made. I mean, I basically ripped them off, which is um, that if you're able to capture the, the, these breakdowns in an aesthetic way, that you can create a rupture that in, in the, the sphere of social production that um, disturbs production and interrupts technical machines in a way that um, we, you know, that, that gives us liberation or, you know, at a chance at achieving more agency in, in, in terms of what they produce. Something, something I'd like to mention that I read about recently was uh, Marx talking, uh, kind of having science fiction kind of ideas about the future, where he where he thought that the uh, the machines would become such that uh, they didn't need the laborers anymore, and and we're kind of getting toward that uh, you know that situation. Uh, with uh, artificial intelligence and uh, robotics and things like that. So I think that that's part of what's going on here is that, you know, the, the, what Marx was saying was the perfect machine is one that will never break, you know, that will, uh, you know, kind of do everything and not need the laborers anymore. 
and mm -hmm. and the and the desiring machines are kind of like uh, the 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 environment in which those perfect machines occur, which which you know show the the opposite, which is that they're breaking down continuously. <clears throat> yeah, um, there there's there's an interesting comment in the discussion chat right now that I think connects um, all this together. And I think it's important to highlight it because I think we need to think against Deleuze and Gattari at times and, and challenge them. Uh, Park Bench wrote, couldn't we argue that there's an Oedipalized kind of false interpolation in that nostalgia as well? Look at Stranger Things, the TV series, and all uh, these things that capitalize on that repackaged nostalgia. What is a liberatory way to marshal out that nostalgia in a way that isn't complacent, or is it ever not? So I, I think he brings uh, an important point to mind, and this will connect with um, the uh, discussion of capitalist realism that we'll talk about on Saturday, uh, is that there is a way <clears throat> that there are certain machines in the social field, namely media, um, that, that, that are able to seize upon these artistic experimental experimental ventures and then mass produce them and even even as we achieve these more sublime uh genres and art forms like vaporwave and and folktronica and things like that um hollywood and the record industry are just right behind waiting for their moment to you know gather it up and then just put it into um you know, uh, something for the masses, and then it loses its its revolutionary power. So it does, you know, bring to uh, the fore this important question is like, is there a kind of genre? Is there a way of capturing this breaking down aesthetically that will just be utterly repulsive to capital, right? I mean, maybe something in the vein of John Waters, you know, like when I watch... Um, uh, his films, like there, there's a way in which that aesthetic hasn't been completely trapped by uh, capitalism. But I, I think it, it's a fascinating question. Maybe some can weigh in on it. Or we can move on. Yeah. We can move on to the next chapter um, because it's again every one of these paragraphs. We could go with a thousand uh, concepts, but I think a second this. Next chapter also dives into a little bit of that um, because they begin talking. Of, I'll just go um, from this. Right. That's where we're at. Yes. Um, a second difference in regime results. Desiring machines produce anti-production all by themselves, whereas the anti-production characteristic of technical machines takes place only within the extrinsic conditions of the reproduction of the process, even though these conditions do not come into being at some later stage. That is why technical machines are not an economic category and always refer back to a socius or a social machine that is quite distinct from these machines and that conditions this reproduction. A technical machine is therefore not a cause, but merely an index of a general form of social production. Thus, there are manual machines in primitive societies, hydraulic machines in Asiatic forms of society, industrial machines and capitalism. Hence, when we posited the socius as the analog of a full body without organs, there was nonetheless one important difference. For desiring machines are the fundamental category of the economy of desire. 
They produce a body without organs all by themselves and make no distinction between agents and their own parts, or between the relations of production and their own relations, or between the social order and technology. Desiring machines are both technical and social. Uh, please say we come back to that. It is in this sense that desiring production is the locus of a primal psychic repression, whereas social production is where social repression takes place. And it is between the former and the latter that there occurs something that resembles secondary psychic repression in the strictest sense. The situation of the body without organs, or its equivalent, is the crucial factor here. Depending on whether it is the result of an internal process or of an extrinsic condition, and thus affects the role of the death instinct in particular. Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is uh, this stuff, man. It's like I actually have like an emotional reaction to reading it because it's it's just so difficult at times. Um, so one of the things I'd like to mention here is uh, uh, agent network theory. That was. Um, there was someone, I think his name was John Law, that came up with it. And Bruno Latour wrote a book called uh, Reassembling the Social. And, yes, uh, yes, yes. And so I, I think that I think that those works of uh, ant theory, they call it, you know, are 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 along the vein of what they're talking about here. Uh, I it it seems like it uh, to to quantify ant theory. If uh, anyone's not super read up, I, I'm I love Latour. Um, he's also very difficult, uh, but an easy book of his is uh, the Cult of the Factish Gods. It's a great great shorter read. Um, but the short version is that uh, when you're planning out a network and trying to see how things interact, you need to treat everything as though it has agency. And that includes computers and wires and every part of everything that you're laying out on a network. Is that, is that close, Kent? Yeah, that's exactly the agency is distributed. Yeah. So rather than Prior to that, it was often assumed that you you only assigned agency to the humans because humans are the only thing that have agency. And ant theory is the opposite. It says, no, no, everything has some level of it. And you need to treat them as if they had it because it makes, uh, you know, planning things significantly easier. I've, I've found it very useful in software development, uh, at least to think of it like that. So that, that that's responding to the line that make no distinction between agents and their parts between the relations of production and the relations. I, I think I think it's definitely referential. And I know, I mean, Latour is obviously part of this world of, of this stuff. Um, have have you have you found anywhere where he's directly talked about Deleuze, though? I haven't. Uh, no. Yeah, of course not. French people. <laughs> um, no, I, I think that this is this is about that where we're talking about uh, every aspect of all of these things. We're talking about ultimately how these things exist inside of. They use the term regime, but it's uh, the hierarchy that these things exist in within within uh, and in relation to the body without organs. Yeah, I think um, it just makes me think that we can attempt to create a. Um, a hierarchy uh, out of social production. We can say, oh, this is at the top of um, our productive hierarchy here. We are distributing value this way, um, and the, we are extracting labor in this form and so forth. But when you look at the totality of relations, and I kind of go back to my example of, of pollution and climate change and that sort of thing, 
the effects by and large um, are non-hierarchicalized. Everything's in the economy. So even when that um, particulate gets distributed across the globe in the oceans and on the on the glacier tops and so forth, all of that lies beyond our intention, um, and it has a, a function in in the or it does function within the whole, I should say. Well, I, I'm going to go back to the the stuff they were talking about earlier because I think it didn't even occur to me to bring in the tour. But I think that's actually probably the best lens to look at this through. But in theory, and Latour, his big underlying thing has always been uh, talking about how science works as a process. And there is an assumption when people go through the process of science in a laboratory, uh, Cult of the Factish Gaz is about this, that uh, you can assume that the people may be fallible, but the process is not. And that's this uh, very similar to what you were saying earlier about the law and Kafka. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is that, no, there's there's natural biases inside of every aspect of everything that happens within the normal scientific process. And it may be something we're wholly unaware of. It may be something that exists inside of test tubes. Uh, that we're not aware of. Test tubes don't have agency, but there is natural biases that exist inside of all of these different aspects. And if we instead look at this network theory as not, oh, well, here are the points of failures where the humans are, but instead look at everything flatly and go, where are all the points of failure across the entire thing? Uh, and assume everything has agency, including the inanimate objects, it makes us more able to understand how biases can appear inside of uh, little things that happen. Mm. Uh, oh, excellent. Thank you, Lou. Finding finding Latour talking about Deleuze. Brilliant. Um, oh, and it looks like it's a absolutely something that good. That's good to see. I'll read through that in a second. But uh, I think Ant Theory here, when he's talking about it, is... Um, we, we make a lot of assumptions like you do with the law and we do in, in classic psychoanalytic theory that there are things that are simply symbols. There are things that simply exist. And it's like, no, no, every single thing is a desiring machine. Every thing, single thing exists. Everything outputs desire. And every single thing, what makes things work is when they break down. And so having an awareness of all of these bits is what makes us understand the situation between us and the body without organs or its equivalent. And that relationship is ultimately what changes our position in the world. Huh? Yeah, that, that, that sounds right. Um, I, I mean, another example that comes to mind is when uh, we go into a forest, for example, and, and do uh, clear-cut logging, and we just destroy the entirety of, of, of a certain region of the forest, and just the impact that it has on those local ecologies and all of the insects and birds and whatnot that must retreat to other areas, you know, there's this other effect that's happening. It's, it, you know, that's peripheral to our intention, but it brings to bear on the entirety of, of the socially productive machine. Um, even at the level of soil, soil depletion, um, compaction, sedimentation, all of that is, is our desiring machines. So uh, another point I'd like to make is that, uh, you know, here it talks about manual machines for primitive societies, hydraulic machines for Asiatic societies, industrial machines for capitalism. But the thing is that the, the, the you know, so the, uh, 
you know, the question was asked, you know, what's the next thing along? And I think, you know, since this book was written, we've gone away uh, in that development where, where we've produced, you know, software machines and artificially intelligent machines. And those have a fundamentally different nature than these industrial machines. And, and I think there's a problem with saying that, um, you know, the, the, uh, the industrial machines are the end of the line, which, which in Deleuze and Guattari, they're kind of suggesting here that, that with capitalism, uh, we've, we've reached the end of the line. But, and, but I think it's worthwhile thinking about the fact that, you know, the thing might have just mutated again into something different with the software machines and with the artificially intelligent machines that are qualitatively different than those in those early industrial machines that were the main basis for production at the time when this book was. Yeah, I mean, Marx kind of touch upon, touches upon the same thing in his discussion of the general intellect, too. Um, and I think they're kind of following him in in this book by uh, his what Marx said was is that at some point the infrastructure of a society of an industrial society will be built up to the point where um, workers will have more agency and in virtue of having more leisure time they'll be able to organize and so forth but uh, one of the interesting things that is eventuated is actually more repression, um, even with the development of something like social media these days, which you think would be, I mean, we're, here we are doing our best to have an enlightened discussion about philosophical topics, but, you know, by and large, social media is now grafted into this massive capitalistic apparatus. And it doesn't see, it, so even as advanced capitalism continues to articulate itself, um, the, the, there's no end in sight in terms of, uh, the repression that people experience. Shall we continue to the next paragraph? Are we at, but at the same time? Yes, we are. All right. I'll do that one. But at the same time, they are the same machines despite the fact that they are governed by two different regimes, and despite the fact that it is admittedly a strange adventure for a desire to desire oppression, there's only one kind of production, the production of the real. And doubtless we can express this identity in two different ways, even though these two ways together constitute the auto-production of the unconscious as a cycle. We can say that social production under determinate conditions derives primarily from desiring production, which is to say that homo, homo natura comes first. But we must also say more accurately that desiring production is first and foremost social in nature. It tends to free itself only at the end, which is to say that homo historia comes first. The body without organs is not an original primordial entity that later projects itself into different sorts of socius, as though or a raving paranoiac, the chieftain of a primitive horde who was initially responsible for social organization. The social machine or socius may be the body of the earth, or the body of the despot, the body of money. It is never a projection, however, of the body without organs. On the contrary, the body without organs is the ultimate residuum of a deterritorialized socius. The prime function incumbent upon the socius has always been to codify the flows of desire, to inscribe them, to record them, and to see that it to see that no flow exists that is not properly dammed up, channeled, regulated. 
When the primitive territorial machine proved inadequate to the task, the despotic machine set up a kind of overcoating system. But the capitalist machine, insofar as it was built on the ruins of a despotic state, more or less far removed in time, finds itself in a totally new situation. It is faced with the task of decoding and re-territorializing the flows. Capitalism does not confront the situation from the outside, since it experiences it as the very fabric of its existence, as both its primary determinant and its fundamental raw material, its form and its function, and deliberately perpetuates it in all its violence, with all the powers at its command. Its sovereign production and repression can be achieved in no other way. Capitalism is, in fact, <laughs> born of the encounter of two sorts of flows, the decoded flows of production in the form of money capital and the decoded flows of labor in the form of the free worker. Hence, unlike previous social machines, the capitalist social machine is incapable of providing a code that will apply to the whole of the social field. By substituting money for the very notion of a code, it has created an axiomatic of abstract quantities that keeps moving further and further in the direction of deterritorialization of the socius. Capitalism tends toward a threshold of decoding that will destroy the socius in order to make it a body without organs and unleash the flows of desire on this body as a deterritorialized field. Is it correct to say that in this sense, schizophrenia is the product of the capitalist machine, as manic depression and paranoia are the product of the despotic machine, and hysteria the product of the territorial machine? Woo! <laughs> Nice. Yeah, a lot going on here. Yeah. There's so, so much. I'm going to just jump in because we're going to go back to my first question and the way I interpreted money equals shit. Because uh -huh. every time we're every time we read further, it feels like that's what they're saying, that actually money is not the thing that is real. Uh, commonly, they, we have the, oh, you dream of shit. That is your mind. That's your brain. The psychoanalytic theory is that's the symbol. That doesn't exist. Money's the thing in the real world that you were really talking about. And they're saying the opposite, that actually what's happening is shit is the real thing that you're producing and money is the lie. Money's the code that was created by the socius. And here what you're saying can be directly juxtaposed with this whole paragraph when they uh... <clears throat> when they juxtapose essentially this earth, the body of the despot, the with the body of money, or as you say, shit with money. And what they've been trying to say, in my opinion, and how I've been reading it, is that capitalism, with its diversity, with its versatility that we have been identifying throughout our reading, is actually secondary. This, this form of capitalist machine cannot be in line with a kind of working of the despotic or despotic machine or the society of discipline as Foucault maybe uh, characterizes it. So, so what, what I've been trying to say and what I think they're trying to say is essentially that, that capitalism here in, in this sense is secondary, right? It is a form of pure deterritorialization which cannot work well when when we understand this the entirety of what we read so far and what we read so far is that essentially this deterritorialization cannot work without continuous re-territorialization re which brings it back from this limit right and what we will see in the next i think uh, in the next section and in the next paragraph is that capitalism always by way of this deterritorial 
the territorialization tends towards its limit without uh, without ever going back, right? Yeah, I think uh, it's important from the start to get a sense of the different ways that the body without organs um, operates in these distinct um, uh, social machines. So there's the body of the earth and the body of the despot. Uh, both of these have the quality of it basically inscribing upon other bodies the codes of a society. So, for example, let's take the body of the despot, um, which could be the king in a feudalistic society. Uh, what, what do they mean by the body? Well, they're actually talking about the body of the king, his actual flesh and bones. And it's from this king who's now put into this sort of rarefied position as leader and despot of that society that all the codes of society flow. And it has a way of capturing uh, the flows of desire uh, in a way um, that becomes deeply unsettled by the introduction of capitalism. And this is the thing about capitalism is that it's defined as having an axiomatic. So there's a way in which uh, capitalism, the flow of capital, decodes all of the other previous flows. So um, it, in, like, in the case of um, you know, primitive pre-modern societies, in the case of despotic societies, feudalistic societies, that kind of organization no longer can take hold once once capital spreads far and wide. And and as they they mentioned earlier, and and they're going to mention again, there have been attempts in society to stave off the introduction of capital because of its um, incredible ability to decode these other forms of social machines. Mm-hmm. And what has been coded for so long, what has been encoded with the efforts of the despotic machine and with the disciplinary society, actually, from from this uh, this uh, paragraph, falls apart with the arrival of capitalism. Right, the, this continual and repetitive and uh, never-ending decoding. Right. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, I can do the next. Or... Yeah. Well, I think another word, uh, a thing that to Andrew that I think is important touch upon again is that capital and capitalism is always striving towards its outer limit, right? Mm -hmm. It's seeing how far it can go to decode the flows without unsettling the apparatus that, that sort of maintains the metastability of capital. It can't go too far. It can't, for for example, uh, like, yeah, I think it's important to bring an example here. Um, Labor unions. Like so, there was a time at which, um, you know, capital had held such a grip on the workers that it created this intense antagonism between workers and owners. That workers fought back and threatened revolution. And then there was the creation of not only labor, you know, trade unions, but there was a negotiation between trade unions and capital, such that from the macro view, we can see that capital sustainability was brought about through the introduction of trade unions to capital. Mm-hmm. So capital couldn't go so far as to destroy its entire ba- its entire um, army of laborers. Um, it needed to to sort of mitigate that th- its own crushing force somehow. The way that it, it could do that, in, in one instance, was to incorporate trade unions into the system of capital. I feel like the, what you've been getting at is precisely this limit that capitalism always tries to reach, but never quite succeeds. This this thing you're talking about. 
Yes. I, I'd like to offer another example, which is the blockchain. So the, the, this blockchain idea, um, basically what it does is that, uh, for instance, banks and other, other uh, accounting um, functions that are usually inside of a corporation uh, can be externalized and put out for everyone to see. And, and so that is, a, that is an example of a kind of decoding where the most precious information that the corporation has and tries to keep from others, is, it can be externalized into that, into that blockchain. And that has um, you know, huge ramifications for the, um, the, the, the structure of capitalism as it exists now. Yeah, I actually used to work within banking and in, in corporate level banking, and I apologize for that in advance. However, um, one of the things that um, the areas of banking that I worked in was an area called cash management. And uh, basically, my job was to make sure that companies could successfully take their surplus cash off of the uh, North American continent on any given day move it to Ireland or move it to the Virgin Islands or somewhere so that they could move into a tax shelter overnight, at which point in the morning they would bring it back. And so there was a certain subset of customers for which I was doing this. I was giving them this sort of preferential treatment. And there were other customers who I dealt with on the very same day who I'm you know, basically overdrafting their account and um, adding charges for not having money in their account overnight. And so I functioned at the nexus of two regimes of capital, the finance capital, where these these um, investors had this sort of privileged status, and the others, the workers who were being overdrawn for not having money in their account. Both, neither of them had money in their account overnight, functionally speaking, but yeah, one the, yielded a benefit from it and the others yielded a deficit. This, this goes back to the beginning of our discussion today because, I mean, what you've been saying about the way the different ways in which the workers deal with money and or perceive money or just ordinary consumers and these corporations are completely different uh, flows of perceiving capital or money uh, another thing that i'd like to mention which i think is apropos here is this whole uh idea of um uh set theory uh which uh, but you talks about um uh, he wants to make it the center of ontology. So set theory is kind of like the, the you know, the fundamental category for, uh, for mathematics, supposedly. Um, but uh, something that's kind of like a blindness in our society is what might be called mass theory, which is the dual of it. And, um, and what's interesting is that uh, set theory has its logic, which is syllogistic logic, and mass theory has its logic, which is a pervasion logic. And, and in the West, we don't have a, a pervasion logic. Uh, we only have syllogistic logic. But if you look at uh, India and China, their logics were basically pervasion logics, and Buddhism is based on a pervasion logic rather than a, than a, uh, than a set logic. And so if you, if you think about this relationship between circulation and hoard, you know, the, ho the hoard is uh, what's circulating are, are the members of a set, right? But when things go into hoard, they become a mass. 
and so and so in the 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 this duality of sets versus mass we don't deal with very well in our society like in mathematics the only things that are mass like are geometry and topology all the other aspects of of uh, mathematics are set like and so and so i think this is something that's underlying the discussion that's happening here in anti oedipus because they 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 start talking about masses and swarms uh, every once in a while and it seems like they they're aware of this duality that's kind of like a blind spot tradition mm -hmm. i actually think we we should we've got go on. I, i'd love to get through the next two paragraphs we've got about yeah, 10 minutes before i want to start closing up but uh the next two mm -hmm. paragraphs i think are a really nice place to stop so um, and Kent did uh, write about this at length. There we go. We got a link to Kent in there. Thanks, Mal. Um, so uh, I can do it. Uh, yeah, go for it. Object. Yeah. The decoding of flows and the deterritorialization of the socius thus constitutes the most characteristic and the most important tendency of capitalism. It continually draws near to its limit, which is a genuinely schizophrenic limit. It tends, with all its strength, with, with all the strength that is command, to produce the schizo as the subject of the decoded flows of the body without organs, more capitalist than the capitalist and more proletarian than the proletariat. This tendency is being carried further and further to the point that capitalism, with all its flows, may dispatch itself straight to the moon. We really haven't seen anything yet. When we say that schizophrenia is our characteristic malady, the malady of our era, we do not merely mean to say that modern life drives people mad. It is not a question of a way of life, but of a process of production, nor is it merely a question of simple parallelism, even though from this point of view of the failure of codes, such a parallelism is a much more precise formulation of the relationship between, for example, the phenomena of shifting of meaning in the case of schizophrenics and the mechanisms of ever increasing disharmony and discord at every level of industrial society. So should I go on to the next one, right? Mm -mm. Let's, let's take a second. Uh, no, fine. Does anyone have anything about this specific paragraph? Because then the next one is a, there's a finality to the next paragraph that I think will end the day. But is there anything we want to go over in this one first? I think those <clears throat> that last sentence is really important. Um, they say, nor is it merely a question of a simple parallelism, even though from the point of view of the failure of codes, uh, such a parallelism is much more precise formulation for the relationship between, for example, the phenomenon of shifting of meaning in the case of schizophrenics and the mechanism of ever increasing disharmony and discord at every level of industrial society. So um, they're, what they're trying to do is disabuse us of the notion that their use of schizophrenia is meant to invoke the uh, a certain notion of madness but you know at some level the the sort of uh the the fleeting movement of capital the 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 constant instability does create a relatively high level of disharmony <laughs> in society it's constantly unsettling codes and therefore we we can perceive it um, as as a kind of madness, but I don't think it's reducible to the notion of um, quote unquote madness that we get in schizophrenia. No, and it's it's worth mentioning. Yeah, this is. Go ahead, Andrew. 
so this, this is highlighted in the first sentences of the next paragraph. So I just wanted to mention that. It's true. I, I, before we go on, though, I just one of the things that I know a lot of people, and I've been one of these, have heard or said or misinterpreted is that the project of them is schizoanalysis, schizophrenia and capitalism is to say that capitalism causes schizophrenia, that it's the malady of the day due to it. And that's a, they're pretty clear here. Actually, that's no, that's a misinterpretation. We're talking about that the, the deterritorialization of society, uh, all of these issues is naturally in itself, the schizophrenic sort of existence. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think another way of thinking about this is in terms of nihilism. You know, we haven't spoken too much about nihilism, but um, I think there's this idea uh, called, that I call the intensification of nihilism, where, where you know, the, the primary thing that the Western worldview is producing is nihilism. And that that happens at all levels, the individual level and the social level, that nihilism is intensifying all the time. And, and the interesting thing about that is that part of that intensification is the production of emergent events, where suddenly something new comes out and you think, oh, that's going to solve all the problems. But the intensification of nihilism is that down the line you realize, no, that's caused more problems than we had before. You know, like the like the internet and and the World Wide Web and cell phones. You know, when those came out, you know, everyone was thinking, "Oh, this is going to solve all of our problems." And then and then we got pornography, we got viruses, we got all of these other things. But now that we've gone into this very odd situation where we're all holed up in our houses, then the internet suddenly allows us to communicate in a way that. We aren't allowed to communicate in other ways, and so, and so it's like a double-edged sword. <laughs> All right, and uh... so, yeah, I can finish this. Yeah, so, for it. what we are really trying to say is that capitalism, through its process of production, produces an awesome schizophrenic accumulation of energy or charge against which it brings all its vast powers of oppression to bear, but which nonetheless continues to act as capitalism's limit. For capitalism constantly counteracts, constantly inhibits this inherent tendency while at the same time allowing it, fr it free reign. It continually seeks to avoid reaching its limit while simultaneously tending toward that limit. Capitalism institutes or restores all sort of residual and artificial imaginary or symbolic ter territorialities, thereby attempting as best as it can to record, to re-channel persons who have been defined in terms of abstract quantities. Everything returns or recurs, states, nations, families. This is what makes the ideology of capitalism a motley painting of everything that has been ever that has ever been believed. The real is not impossible. It is simply more and more artificial. Marx termed the twofold movement of the tendency to a feeling of to a feeling rate of profit and the increase in the absolute quantity of surplus value, the law of the counteracted tendency. As a corollary of this law, there is a twofold movement of decoding or deterritorializing flows on the one hand, and that the violent and artificial re-territorialization on the other. The more the capitalist machine deterritorializes decoding and axiomatizing flows in order to extract, to extract surplus value from them, the more its 
ancillary apparatuses such as government bureaucracy, bureaucracies and the forces of law and order do their utmost to re-territorialize, absorbing in the process a larger and larger share of surplus value. I love this. That paragraph makes sense. It's the first one today that just I, I understood as we read it. Yeah. And when, when we do our review of the week, make, I'm, I'm making a note that I have to bring up the section here where he says uh, the ideology of capitalism, a motley painting of everything that has ever been believed. I could talk mm -hmm. about that and how that's absolutely true in so many ways right now. It's it's an extraordinary statement. I love that. Yeah. It's so interesting. What, one way of th thinking about what they're talking about here, <clears throat> going back to nihilism, is this kind of meta dialectic between nihilism and emergence, where, where, you know, the it, the way I think about it is that the nihilism is like the background that that's that's necessary in order to see the emergent event when it occurs, and so that background gets darker and darker and darker as it gets more and more uh, nihilistic. But then when the aversion event occurs, then it appears like that is reorganized uh, in, some, in some fundamental way. And, uh, but then that reorganization is an intensification of nihilism. In other words, it has, it has uh, forced you into uh, nihilistic possibilities that were not being realized in the, in the, uh, the regime. So, I mean, just for rounding this up and finishing the section, maybe somebody should read it to the end, and then maybe tomorrow we go into go into more depth in the uh, recap discussion. Yeah, I'll take the last paragraph, and I think um, that'll close out the day. We'll take a yeah. few minutes of conversation, uh, but that's we actually finished this in two sittings. I did not think we would be able to do that. There is no doubt that at this point in history, the neurotic, the pervert, and the psychotic cannot be adequately defined in terms of drives, for drives are simply the desiring machines themselves. They must be defined in terms of modern territorialities. The neurotic is trapped within the residual or artificial territorialities of our society and reduces all of them, la robot totes, to Oedipus as the ultimate territoriality. As reconstructed in the analyst's office and projected upon the full body of the psychoanalyst. Yes, my boss is my father, and so is the chief of state, and so are you, doctor. The pervert is someone who takes the artifice seriously and plays the game to the hilt. If you want them, you can have them. Territoriality is infinitely more artificial than the ones that society offers us. Totally artificial new totally artificial new families, secret lunar societies. As for the schizo, continually wandering about, migrating here and there and everywhere as best he can, he plunges further and further into the realm of deterritorialization, reaching the furthest limits of the decomposition of the socius on the surface of his own body without organs. It may well be that these peregrinations are the schizo's own particular way of rediscovering the earth. Schizophrenic delivery seeks out the very limit of capitalism. He, he is its inherent tendency brought to fulfillment, its surplus product, its proletariat, and its, its exterminating angel. He scrambles all the codes and is the transmitter of the decoded flows of desire. The real continues to flow. In the schizo, the two aspects of process 
are conjoined. The metaphysical process that puts us in contact with the demoniacal element in nature or within the heart of the earth, and the historical process of social production that restores the autonomy of desiring machines in relation to the deterritorialized social machine. Schizophrenia is desiring production as the limit of social production. Desiring production and its difference in regime are compared, as compared to social production, are thus endpoints, not points of departure. Between the two, there is nothing but an ongoing process of becoming that is the becoming of reality. And if materialist psychiatry may be defined as the psychiatry that introduces the concept of production into consideration of the problem of desire, it cannot avoid posing in eschological terms the problem of the ultimate relationship between the analytic machine, the revolutionary machine, and desiring machines. That's awesome. That's so great. I, I, this brings me up of uh, the story of Faust. I don't know if any of you read Faust by Goethe, where he writes this book throughout his whole lifetime. It takes around 50 years for him to finish it, but it's, it's a story between Faust and I can't pronounce the other name, other, the other character's name. It's Miss Mephisto, Mephisto, yeah, exactly. So whoever can pronounce that name correct, I'll give him props, but the story is online. The story is that Faust puts both of himself in these two characters. And the famous line that Mephisto writes in that book is that he's the spirit of negation. But Faust is the spirit of positive positivism. So and then the these characters tangle and Faust was supposed to represent the aspect of any kind of evil wickedness. And then this is this you're gonna is the, have to you're gonna have to start over. You're super cutting out. You're super cutting out, buddy. So I can grab uh, a mic. Hold on. Welcome back. All right. Can Maybe you guys we... hear me now? There we go. Much better. Perfect. Maybe. Maybe. So, as, so as I was saying, can you guys not hear me? I think you it might be your internet on. connection. Uh-oh. Uh, test, test one. It's definitely, it's definitely your internet connection. Darn. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'll do it for for the. That's okay. We'll figure he's it out. Yes, he's he's bounced, which is fine. Um, but we'll we'll get into that for the review uh, tomorrow. Uh, we are going to finish out the day here, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and let everyone slowly get back to their real real life. Uh, but tomorrow, feel free to join us around the same time, and we'll have more of a roundtable chat through all of this, which I know I'll be there for because it's. Uh, going to be a lot to go through. It's such a dense and amazing chapter. Uh, so thank Please, you guys again uh, for sure. Guys, go ahead. If you guys can, just prepare questions for tomorrow because um, it, it helps manage the dead space between speakers, right? And if you have precise questions which are posed, then it's easier for everybody. 
hundred percent. It's worth just take a minute and just write down any questions you have right now. We will do our best to get through all of them. Uh, otherwise, uh, we do find that there is little bits of dead space in the reviews that uh, is wonderfully awkward. Uh, but hey, dead space is anti-production. I'm just saying. So, uh, with that, we will say uh, good evening and all to thank you. Thank you guys so much, and we will talk to you soon. All right. See you later. See you later. Bye-bye.